0: for your grace. We're grateful, Lord, for your presence. We're grateful, Lord, for your word, which is truth with no mixture of error. And I pray. Well, uh, you open to Psalm chapter 1. You there? Alright. I'm not there yet, so I better get there. Psalm chapter 1. I'm, I'm going to begin tonight by just reading the entire psalm. We won't do this every night because of, of the length of some of the psalms. We may just lead, read a, a passage to begin and look at other verses as we work our way through. But this is not a very long psalm at all. So we're going to just read our way through it. And so you just kind of follow along while I read it out loud. Book one, Psalm one, verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree, Powerful, isn't that powerful? I love Psalm chapter one. What a way to kick off our study uh, of the Psalms! I'm going to begin with this statement, and this this first statement is in your notes. Really sums up what I believe Psalm one is all about. Here it is: the Psalms, the the whole collection of these hymns. I told you last week that the 100, 150 chapters of the Psalms are meant to be, uh, were meant to be songs sung by the Hebrew people. In worship, So these psalms are meant to be sung by the congregation of the righteous. The congregation of the righteous. You say, Wade, where did you get that phrase, congregation of the righteous? Well, I got it straight from our text. Did you notice when it said there in verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And so what the psalmist is doing here is he's saying these are the people, the kind of people that should be singing these psalms. Uh, I like how uh, how, um, Derek Kidner says it. He says, It seems likely that this psalm was specially composed as an introduction to the whole Psalter. Certainly it stands here as a faithful doorkeeper confronting those who would be in the congregation of the righteous. And so what they're saying here is this. Psalm 1 serves as a, a doorway or a gateway into the rest of the psalms. And the purpose of Psalm 1 is to say... Listen, this is the type of person you ought to be. If you want to sing these songs and mean them, you need to be counted in the congregation of the righteous. Now I want to just kind of hone in on that word righteous for a moment and discuss what that means uh, in the context of all of Scripture. Because we're not careful we can read the word righteous and say, well, the congregation of the righteous speaks of people that just are do-gooders, right? But there's a lot more meaning in the word righteous. And so if you look there in your notes, I'm going to sum it up like this. We need righteousness as our position and our practice. We need righteousness as our position and our practice. And the Bible speaks of righteousness as a position and a practice. And the first way we need to think about righteousness is as a position. For example, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 21. The last verse in chapter 5. The Bible says, I love this verse. For our sake, He, the Lord, made Him, His Son Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. And so, on the cross, Jesus Christ who is sinless and was sinless, took our sin on himself. He became our sin so he could pay the punishment for our sin. Amen? Good news. Look at the next phrase. So that in him, in Christ, if we're saved, if we're in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So, here's what that means. At the moment of conversion, this is so important. At the moment of conversion, your sin was applied to The the death of Christ, his death, paid the penalty for all of your sins, right? Okay, And at the moment of conversion, you got all of the perfection of Christ uh, as a gift. That's called imputed righteousness, or theologians call it alien righteousness because it's not yours, it comes from someone else. So when you were saved, Jesus gave you his perfection, which he earned by living on this earth perfectly. He gave it to you as a gift, so now when God looks at you, he not only sees you as forgiven of your sin, he sees you as, as bearing the righteousness of his Son. That's the position you have in Christ. And so you have a right standing with God, not because you're good, but because he's good. And he gave you that righteousness as a gift. So "Wait, How do I get that righteousness? You said in the moment of conversion. Look over in Philippians chapter 3. Let me show you this. Philippians chapter 3. Paul's talking about this because Paul understood this very well. Paul lived much of his life trying to earn a right standing with God. He tried to make his life acceptable to God, but that never works out because we're all sinners. That that and our sin separates us from God. So how can we be right with God if we can't work our way to God? Well, look what Paul discovered in Philippians chapter three, verse seven. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, watch this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he's saying here, when I place my faith in Christ, I had a right standing with God. Jesus gave me his righteousness as a gift. And so now, here's my position in Christ. I am righteous, right? Because I'm robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not my righteousness, it's his righteousness. And I'm so glad he gave it to me as a gift. So if you're a Christian tonight, you have the righteousness of Christ that's been given to you as a gift. You are robed in his righteousness righteousness. And that's a wonderful, wonderful position to be in, right? But not only does the Bible speak of righteousness as a position, as a standing uh, in Christ, it speaks of our pursuit of righteousness in a practical way in our day-to-day lives. In other words, now that you are saved, now that you've been forgiven, and now that you possess the righteousness of Christ, start to live like it. In other words, let your practice come into conformity with your position, now that you have been given the righteousness of Christ, your life ought to start looking differently, right? And the Bible speaks of this pursuit of righteousness in the Christian life. Look what it says over in uh, 1 Thessalonians. Another letter of Paul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 10. Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. He says, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So Paul's saying when we rode into Thessalonica and we, we lived there with you for a time and we preached the gospel and made disciples, we, you're a witness that we were living righteous lives. Now here he's talking about the practice of righteousness, doing what God says and not doing what God says not to do. Okay, That's the practice of righteousness, and it speaks of this as well over in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look what it says, uh, just a few pages over. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Paul, writing to his young protege Timothy, says this. But as for you, O men of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness. And so righteousness is a gift from God that is given to the believer in Christ at the moment of conversion. It's a right standing with God. But it's also to be a pursuit for the Christian where we begin to to bring into conformity our practice with our position. So Christians who have been forgiven and Christians who have been given the gift of the righteousness of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus, ought to be fervent and diligent about trying to do the right thing. Right? The fact that you've been forgiven and you've been given the gift of righteousness, if that doesn't motivate you to want to do the right thing, what will? Right? Right? We don't don't try to achieve uh, righteousness to be right with God. We try to do righteous things because we are right with God. Does that make sense? We don't try to earn our standing with God. We've been given a right standing with God as a gift, and therefore we're so overwhelmed with gratitude that we want to do the right thing. And so that's what he's talking about here, the the position and practice of righteousness. So going back to that phrase in Psalm 1, when it says the congregation of the righteous, what does he mean? Does he mean folks that just are, that, you know, Do good deeds? No. When he speaks of the congregation of the righteous, he's speaking of people that have a personal relationship with God by faith. So they've been given righteousness as a gift, as a standing. But also people, because they've been saved, they want to do the right thing. They are pursuing practically day-to-day righteousness. that makes sense? That's what they mean by the congregation of the righteous. And so, if you're a Christian... And, you're, and, you, and you want to do the right thing, and you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to live the right way according to the commandments of God, then you're a part of the congregation of the righteous. And the point of Psalm 1 is this. If, if, if you want to be in the congregation of the righteous, if, 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 you, if that's what you want your life to be, here's what it needs to look like. That's what Psalm 1 is all about. And, and in, in an essence, the, the the writer of Psalms is saying here, listen to me, uh, this will help you if you, if you live this way, This will help you to mean the songs that you sing. It's a gateway to the other psalms. In other words, let me say it like this. Don't pick up this hymn book and sing these songs if you're not concerned about righteousness. Does that make sense? Is is it possible to sing Christian songs and your heart not be in it? Is that possible? Is it possible to come to church and your heart not be in it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Over in Isaiah, God says over and over again, he says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And so he's saying like, he's, basically Psalm 1 is saying, hey, if you're going to sing these songs and mean them, you need, to, you need to live a righteous life. And here's what the righteous life looks like. That's why I believe Psalm 1 is the first psalm in the Psalter. And so, as we study Psalm 1, what we see emerge is or are, we see emerge, characteristics of the congregation of the righteous. Characteristics of the congregation of the righteous. So what should the congregation of the righteous look like? What should saved folks' lives look like? It's a good question, isn't it? What should saved folks' lives look like? Well, the answer here is in this psalm. Number one, first characteristic of the congregation of the righteous, and by the way, before I get to it, If you you have a question as I work my way through, I know I talk fast and something may come into your mind and say, I I want to know more about that, just jot it down in your notes and I'll take some questions at the end of our time together tonight. But here's the first characteristic of the congregation of the righteous. People that are not influenced by the ungodly. Those that are part of the congregation of the righteous are people that are not influenced by the ungodly. Look what it says there in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not, everyone say not. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's a a a, a progressive way of saying there's a progression here. He goes from sinners to, I mean wicked to sinners to scoffers. The progression here is saying the 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 righteous person, the person that is that is saved right with God and pursuing righteousness in their day-to-day life is not influenced by the wicked, not influenced by the sinners, not influenced by The scoffers. Derek Kidner writes this. He says, These three complete phrases, walking not in the counsel of the wicked, not standing in the way of the sinners, nor sitting in the seat of scoffers, these three phrases uh, show three aspects, include indeed three degrees of departure from God. By portraying conformity to this world at three different levels, accepting its advice, being party to its ways, and adopting the most fatal of its attitudes for the scoffers, if not the most scandalous of sinners, are the farthest from repentance. And so he's saying here, when he says, walk not in the counsel of the wicked, he's saying, don't take the world's advice. When he says, don't stand in the way of sinners. Don't, don't, don't model your life after the ways of people that are far from God. And, and he says, don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Don't take on the attitude of the scoffers because they are far from God." God. And, and, and what he's saying, in essence, is this. Don't let your life be influenced by the ungodly. So, let me give you some thoughts on that. Number one, a godly person does not orient their life towards evil. A godly person does not orient their life towards evil. So, we're around evil because we're in the world, right? The Bible says we're in the world, not of the world. So we're around evil all the time. But a godly person doesn't fix their focus upon the ungodly, the evil all around them. They don't orient their life towards evil. For example, turn over to Psalm 141. Let me show you what David says about this. David pursued a righteous life. He pursued practical righteousness at different times in his life. And look what he says in Psalm 141, verse 3. Psalm 141, verse 3. David praying here says, so Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That's a great prayer to pray, isn't it? Hey, God, guard what I say. It's a great prayer to pray. Do not, now watch this, do not let my heart incline, turn toward, be interested in any evil. To busy myself with wicked deeds in, in company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. In other words, saying, don't let me Become enamored with ungodly folks. Don't let me open up my heart and my mind and my life to folks who are far from you. Don't let the orientation of my life be about the ungodly. That's what David is saying here. I don't want to, he said, I don't want to be influenced by the ungodly of this world. So a godly person, those that are in the congregation of the righteous, they do not orient their life towards evil. But here's the challenge. This is in your notes. We are constantly bombarded with ungodly messages and worldviews. I mean, it's everywhere. It's on the radio. It's on the television. It's in movies. It's in magazines. It's on the internet. It's everywhere. You and I are constantly being bombarded with ideas, thoughts, values, worldviews that are antithetical to the Bible. And, And what happens is... We hear it so much and we're exposed to it so much that we become desensitized. Where we we don't even realize what we're hearing, how far it is from the ways of God. And so we've got to make sure, we've got to make sure that that as we are being bombarded, that we are looking at those messages for what they really are. They are ungodly things that seek to lead us astray and destroy our lives. So we're constantly bombarded with ungodly messages and worldviews. And we are constantly bombarded with ungodly images and examples. So for example, Super Bowl commercials. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I can, I can, I can guarantee you there are going to be some ungodly images in those. And so here's my two cents. I'm, I'm not going to be at your Super Bowl parties. But, but I, I think it, if it was in my house, if I was hosting the Super Bowl party, I would just turn it, turn it off during commercials or turn the channel or something because you know, I mean, you know what's coming. You say, well, it's entertaining, but, but you know what's coming, right? You know what's coming. Ungodly images. And again, we're, we're exposing them so much, we become desensitized, and, and we'll laugh at something in a Super Bowl commercial that would have sent shockwaves through the country 60 years ago. I mean, it would have been scandalous, but now we see it and we laugh, right? You know why? Because we, our values have been eroded by a bombardment of ungodly images. It's kind of like, it's kinda like the, the waves washing up on the seashore, uh, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month. Year after year, eventually those waves begin to erode the seashore. And, and it's not even perceptible sometimes, the erosion that's taking place. And, and what's happening in our lives is our values, our Christian values, our biblical values are being eroded. And we're buying into stuff that is so antithetical to the Bible. We're bombarded with it. We're bombarded with it. And that's true for, for, for me. It's true for you. It's true for your kids, for your grandkids. It's true for us all. So, here's the, here's the reality. And I love this quote from Albert Moeller. It really kind of drives the point home. When you consume a culture's entertainment, you eventually consume its morality. When you consume a culture's entertainment, you eventually consume its morality. So, let me give you an example. Uh, you know... We were, uh, sh- we were horrified by the decision the Supreme Court made this past summer legalizing same-sex marriage, uh, a redefinition of what marriage even is. And that was a, uh, it was a very difficult thing to see our country do, and, 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 and it was a, 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 very, um, a very troubling time in our nation. It still is. The aftermath implications are going to continue on from that, that ungodly decision by nine Supreme Court judges. But while I was horrified, I was not surprised. You know why I wasn't surprised? I wasn't surprised because you and I have been watching sitcoms and shows for years, and the most engaging characters on the shows are those that are the most immoral. And we they're they're funny, and we laugh at them, right? We laugh at them, and we just consume it, you know, week after week. Month after month, year after year, and now, since we've been consuming the culture's entertainment, now we're, we're consuming the culture's morality, right? It's how the culture wears you down. And so, we need to need to be aware of the, the ungodly that's all around So, wait, what do we do? I mean, how, how do we handle this if, if we're being bombarded all the time? How do we live as Christians in an ungodly culture? Here you go, ready? In light of the evil all around us, we must... Be vigilant. We must be vigilant. Look over First Thessalonians chapter five with me. First Thessalonians chapter five. I'm going to speed up a little bit because this I didn't mean to spend this long here. First Thessalonians chapter five. I got more stuff later on. Look at First Thessalonians chapter five, verse five. Paul writing says, "For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So that he's using light and darkness as metaphors for good and evil." And he says, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. What he's saying is this, be on guard. Don't slumber. Keep your guard up. Be vigilant. There's evil everywhere. And if you're not on guard, it will infiltrate your mind. It will infiltrate your heart. It'll lead you to do the wrong thing. Be on guard. Be vigilant. You and I need to be so vigilant in the bombardment that's taking place in our, in our own individual lives, in our families' lives, in our kids' lives, we need to be vigilant. Let me tell you one way I try to be vigilant. I have a, a pastor friend, and he's, he's a good buddy. And, and we, we try to meet once a, a week, uh, in early one morning. And, and when we meet, we ask each other some really hard questions about our walks with Christ, how we're doing with our thought life and what we're viewing and, and what we're thinking, how we're treating folks, and, and just, some, just some really penetrating questions. And, and I know that accountability is coming. I know that that every week this pastor friend of mine is going to ask me some tough questions and it makes me examine the way I'm living in my life. It, it helps me to be vigilant because I know the questions are coming, right? And so I believe having some accountability in our life, some folks that we know and trust, that have the permission to ask us hard questions and have the permission to say, "Hey, are you doing okay in this area because I, I kind of see this I and mean, we need that accountability in our lives because it keeps us on guard, so we 've got to be vigilant we 've got to know what 's going on out there um, every now and then, um, and i 'm not even recommending you do this you don 't have to do this to know that we live in an ungodly culture, but every now and then i 'll just turn my radio station to to a you know just a country music or a rock station and just listen to a few songs just to say what you know what's going on out there just I want I want to hear uh what what people are listening to and it's shocking it really is I mean the things that are being said in music that we just we consume without any kind of thought we we listen and it's a catchy song and we sing along and they're singing about things and celebrating things that are that are evil And if you think that music doesn't influence your emotions, then you don't understand music very well. One of the reasons God emphasizes music, godly music, is because he knows how it affects us, right? It affects our minds and our hearts. So you and I got to be very, very careful about what we listen to, what we view. We need to be vigilant. But here's another thing. We must be not just vigilant, we must be diligent to separate ourselves from evil. We want to be called the congregation of the righteous. We want to live righteous lives, positionally and practically. We, we need to be diligent to separate ourselves from evil. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Look what it says in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in testify the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That means people who are not believers in Christ, the pagan world... In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so here's what Paul is saying. Listen, you're a new person now. Stop living like the old you. You're a new person. Put off the old you and say, that's not who I am anymore. God, help me not to give in to my old self, my sin nature. Help me to go in the new direction and live like the new person that I am. He's saying, uh, let your practice come to conformity with your position you are a saint the Bible says you have been given the gift of righteousness you are born again you are redeemed it ought to affect the way you live your life right right quite on that one it ought to I mean our lives and I don't mean this in in a weird way uh, or, or I mean some people can be weird and annoying I don't mean this at all but but our lives ought to look different than the world. Shouldn't they? If we're new people and we're, and we're not giving into the old sin nature, the old self, if we're going in a new direction, our lives, our, our marriages, our families, our, the way we treat people on the job, our neighborhoods, our, it, it ought to look different. It ought to look different because we are new people in Christ. So be diligent to separate yourselves from evil. And let me show you one more passage. So over, turn over to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I quoted this in my sermon on uh, Sunday, but it again drives home this point. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul writing to the, the worldly church in Corinth, he says... Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, the ungodly, and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So here's what God says. He says that we ought to separate ourselves from the ungodly. There needs to be boundaries, listen, between our lives and those who are evil or do not have um, the, the, the ways of the Lord uh, as on the front of their heart and their mind. Now, But here's a good question. Because the Bible says separate, right? So what should we do when we come across evil? I just said it. Separate, all right? Okay, so let's say it again. So what should we do when we come across evil? Separate, all right. Now, what about Jesus? He was called a friend of sinners, right? Went and sat and had dinner with Matthew and his friends and Zacchaeus so what about that so so how can we be like Jesus and be a friend of sinners and yet separate from evil you ever thought about that one that's a dilemma isn't it and here's the here's the matrix I've come up with to help us discern how we handle that okay how we can separate from evil and yet be friend to sinners so we can point them to Christ all right here's the matrix you ready ask yourself this question Who's having more influence in this relationship? If I'm influencing them towards Christ, I need to continue that relationship, invest that relationship, you know, continue to point them to Christ because God's given me an open door in their life to be a good influence. Okay, But if they're influencing me more than I'm, I'm influencing them, it's time to build some separation in your life. And get some accountability in your life. And if you do talk to them about the Lord, maybe have a friend with you or you know, an accountability partner with you. But the question you need to ask is, who's having more influence in this relationship? And, and, and if you're around a group of folks and your intentions were great, but they're having more influence on you than you are on them, and just be honest with yourself, it's time to put some distance between you and them. Because the Bible says that the one who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That's what it says in Proverbs 13. The companion of fools will suffer harm. So it's about influence. Jesus ate with sinners, but guess what? They weren't rubbing off on him. He was rubbing off on them. Can I get an amen? Right? Right? And so, yes, we want to be around people that are far from God and are broken because we have the message of hope, right? We can extend to them the love of God and the grace of God and the transforming power of Christ. We have a, an awesome message that, that transforms and saves people. And so, yes, we go to broken people. Yes, we go to hurting people. But if they begin to influence us more than them, it's time to build that separation in and not allow them to have that influence in our life. And so when you when you go to... Step into an uh, relationship with someone who is far from God. It needs to be for a redemptive purpose, right? Your your goal is to is to preach the gospel. And if that's not happening, then you need to regroup and and separate and say they're having too much influence on me and we need to come up with another plan and to get somebody else involved or whatever because they are are pulling me away from God. And I'm telling you, they eventually will do that. They eventually will pull you down if you're around them long enough. And so ask that question. Who's influencing whom when it comes to this relationship? So we've got to be diligent. If there is something that's evil, then, if it's on TV, we, we turn it off. If it if it's a if it's a website that we keep going to that leads us astray, we we you know we sh- shut down the internet. We you know, I mean you know we got to be practical. If there if there's a song that that uh you know a lot of these country songs uh, are about you know uh, romances with old flames and and you're listening to this song and it's about an old flame and you start thinking about an old flame in your life. Listen, that's ungodly. Turn the song off. I don't care what the, I don't care who sings it, how good it sounds. If it gets to, if it gets you thinking about your old flame and you're married, that's wrong. If social media is leading you astray, if you're on social media and and an old boyfriend or girlfriend pops up and you start chatting with them, listen, you don't even have to pray about it. That's wrong. That's wrong. Shut it down. Get off Facebook. Do I mean do something else? Right. Follow college football recruiting or something that'll keep you busy. So, so, uh, so, we need to we need to we need to separate uh, ourselves from evil. We must be diligent in that. So, number one, That was number one. I'm gonna go real, a, lot, a lot faster. Okay, number one, characteristics of the, of, of the congregation of the righteous. The, these kind of folks that Psalm was talking about are not influenced by ungodly. Everybody got that? Okay. Here's number two. Number two. Second characteristic. People that that joyfully, that word joyfully is important, joyfully engage God's word. Look back with me in Psalm 1. Psalm 1. I love the language that is used here in verse 2. But, so the, the righteous man, the righteous person, the one in the congregation of the righteous is not swayed by the by the wicked, by the sinner, by the scoffer. They're not influenced by them, but it says, here's the contrast, His delight, everyone say delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, the Word of God, He meditates day and night. Let me give you some thoughts based upon that one verse. The Word of God is an amazing gift. Let me just stop there for a moment. I think think sometimes we undervalue the Word of God in our lives is because we just lose sight of how amazing it is that God has spoken to us. is that what the Bible is? God has revealed Himself in the pages of Scripture. What a gift that anytime we want to, we can open up our Bibles and hear directly from God. What an amazing gift. And so because this gift is so amazing, the Word of God, uh, we we should delight in it. The Word of God is an amazing gift that we should delight in. He says there, His delight is in the law of the Lord. I like what John Piper says. The point of this psalm is to say that when you experience the word of God like that as so delightful and so satisfying that it captures your mind and heart day and night and weans you away from the counsel and path and seed of the world, when you experience the word like that, you are blessed, you are happy. So he's speaking here, not just, okay, I had my quiet time today and I'm done with my Bible, he's speaking of people that love the Word of God and long for the Word of God, and they can't wait to get to their Bible reading time, and they think about it throughout the day, and the Word of God uh, saturates their lives, and it changes them. If you cut them, they bleed Bible, because they have so much Bible in their lives. The Word of God is an amazing gift that we should delight in. You say, Wade, I don't delight in my Bible reading. You say, it sounds good, but I'm just not there. It's, it kind of feels rigorous to me, kind of hard sometimes. I kind of have to work my way through it. So how can I get to a place of delighting in the Word of God? Here's the only thing I found that works. Okay, ready? You just keep reading until duty is transformed into delight. And what I found is this. The more I read the Bible, the more I want to read the Bible. that makes sense? The more I read the Bible, the more I want to read the Bible. Just try it. Just start reading your Bible consistently. Now I promise you, if you consistently read your Bible, you'll get to a place in your Christian life where you can't wait for that quiet time. You can't wait to just get alone with God at your dining room table or your easy chair or or you know uh, your bedside or at your desk at work or wherever you're quiet your back porch your swing whatever you can't wait to get to that spot and just open your Bible and spend time with God as He speaks to you and I've just found it's, it's it's been true in my life the more I read my Bible the more I want to read my Bible the less I read my Bible the less I want to read my Bible so I I'm willing to to, to I was going to say bet, not a betting man. I, I'm willing to, uh, in a manner of speaking, wager. I'm willing to wager that, that if you don't delight in the word of God, it's because you're not consistent. Now, I'm, just, I'm throwing that out there. All right? I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. But I'm just throwing that out because I've seen it in my own life. I've seen times when I'm not consistent in the Word of God, and I don't hunger for it. But when I am consistent in the Word of God, I begin to delight in the Word of God. Because when you read it consistently, you begin to see all the connections in the Word of God and, and how it just shapes your life, and it's just amazing. So, if you want to delight in the Word of God the way the psalmist here does, the way we ought to, then be consistent. I, I know me. okay. I have to have a Bible reading plan. If I don't have a Bible reading plan, I will not be consistent. And I'll be haphazard in my Bible reading. But I have a Bible reading plan. I read for four places every day. And it, and it takes me through the Bible in a year's time. And that's, I've done it for five years now, four years. And it's been invaluable in my life. It really has. I know every year I'm going to read Exodus. And I know every year I'm going to read Habakkuk. And I know every year I'm going to read through the four Gospels. And I know every year I'm going to read Romans. And every year I'm going to read Revelation. And I know that I'm going to be exposed to the entire counsel of God every year. And I'm telling you, it, it, it just shapes your life. The way you think, the way you live, it just shapes you then what, what's happening is Romans two, or Romans 12. You're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the more you read your Bible, listen to me, this is, comes from your pastor, the more you'll want to read your Bible. Sound good? You'll delight in it. But here's the next thing. The Word of God is an amazing gift that we should meditate on. Meditate on. You say, wait, what is meditation? The Bible speaks of it here, uh, there in Psalm 1. Do you notice what he said? Psalm 1, get back there to you. Psalm 1, verse 2, he says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, when we think of meditation, we often think of Eastern mysticism, right? Hinduism or Buddhism, and we think of you know, just a, a, a quietness, a, a, a transcendental meditation it's called. And the purpose of Eastern mysticism is that you, that you empty your mind and come to a state of nothingness. Whatever that means. I don't know how you come to a state of nothingness, but that's what, that's what they're teaching. And so I don't recommend that, okay? Because I believe if you empty your mind of Jesus, then another spirit's going to want to take the place. But anyway, that's another sermon. But here's the deal. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is filling up your mind. It's focusing your thoughts on the Word of God. That's what meditation is. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says it like this. Meditation is to your inner person what digestion is to your body. You make the Word a part of your life and you grow. All right, So we, we're, we're internalizing the Word of God when we meditate. So I'm going to answer this question quickly. How do I meditate on Scripture? How do I do this practically? Okay, I want to be like the psalmist here. I want to be like the congregation of the righteous. I want to delight in the Word of God. I want to meditate day and night. How do I do that? Well, I've got an acrostic there, the word meditate. Everybody see that? M e d i t a t e, and every letter there gives you a, a, a sentence or, or or a word or phrase that helps you to understand how to meditate. Number one, first the, the 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 M there is memorize. Memorize. The easiest way to think about the Bible is to memorize the Bible, so it's right there when you need it. Right when you're driving down the road, you can you can think about the scripture that you have memorize. So memorize the Bible. You say, wait, I'm not good at, at Bible memory. Well, just try a verse a week. And if you did a verse a week and really learned it, you'd learn 52 verses this year if you start in January, right? That'd be better than nothing, right? Start there. Or maybe say, hey, between now and Easter, I'm going to memorize Isaiah 53, the passage about Jesus, the prophetic passage of Jesus being nailed to the cross. Or, or I'm going through tough times, so I'm going to memorize psalm 46 or just think of some chapter maybe and just work your way verse a day and and and, and memorize because when you memorize it it's there and it's, it's there for you to chew on to think about memorize number two engage engage by that i mean when you read the bible ask yourself these questions who when what why who's writing this uh when you read a passage who, who's it being written to What's it about? What's being said here? Why is this being written? What's the significance of it? Just, and just ask yourself some basic questions as you're reading a text of Scripture, and you'll be amazed as you begin to answer those questions how it gives you insight into the context and the meaning of that passage. So engage it. Don't just read it and, and mindlessly close your Bible. How many of you have ever read the Bible in your quiet time, and 30 minutes later, if someone asked you what you read, you, you could not tell them? You ever been there? I've been there, Right? It's because you're not engaging it. Engage the Word of God. Think about uh, the Word of God. Who, when, why, uh, what, why. Third, deliberate. By that I mean slow down. Slow down. Take your time. Maybe read a, a paragraph of Scripture and go back and read it again. Read it slowly. Read it out loud. Maybe read it and then if you have the Bible on your phone that that uh, is audio, it'll play, It'll you know, uh, play an audio version, read it and then listen to it. And then listen to it and then read it again. Just slow down. You'd be amazed at how it really helps you to, to think through the Scriptures. The the eyes investigate. That I mean, I mean study, dig in. If it makes you think of another verse, that you, you're reading a passage it makes you think of another verse, go look at that other verse and dig in. Investigate. Begin to ask yourself this question, what does this mean? Investigate. The T talk it out. Talk it out by yourself or with someone else. Sometimes it helps uh, if you ever pass me uh, out and about and I'm in my truck and I'm riding down the road and I look like I'm talking to myself, I might be. I might be, all right? Talking through something. Uh, talk it out. Articulate. Hey, s- uh, articulate what the, the passage means. Uh, the main point of the passage in your own words or just talk it out or talk to somebody else about it. One of the best ways I found to nail down a pastor scripture is to talk to somebody that day about what I read. Hey, let me tell you what I read this morning and just talk about it. And you'll be amazed how it makes it fix in your mind. The A, ask questions. And this deals with application. Is there a command to obey? Ask yourself that question. Is there a promise to claim? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a lesson to learn? Is there a new truth to carry with me? There's some good questions. There's others. Some good questions to carry with you and to think about as you try to think about how a passage applies to your life. And then the T is treasure. Delight. Think about it. Treasure it. Just rejoice in what God's teaching you. Talk to Him about it. Treasure it. And the E is exemplify. In other words, understand the reason for meditation. Look over in Joshua, Old Testament book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1. By the way, Lord willing, when I finish the book of Acts, we're going to start a study on Sunday mornings in the book of Joshua. So a little insider information because you came tonight. All right. Hey, on Sunday, if you're sitting by somebody that didn't come tonight, you can say, I know something you don't know. I know what we're preaching. I know what Brother Wade's going to preach on next. All right, all right. Joshua chapter one. Look what it says in verse eight. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Watch this, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Meditation is not meant to just make us biblically literate and smarter. Meditation is meant to change the way we live our lives. Right? How does this text affect my life? So, exemplify what you learn. Live it out. That's just a quick thought about meditation. Meditation. I'll give you just a quick example. This morning, I was reading through Exodus, and it was when God sends Moses and Aaron to say to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. Uh, And God said, I'm going to harden his heart so I can show Pharaoh my power and and so that Egypt will know that I'm the Lord. And so... um, You know, God keeps sending these plagues, but before he begins to send the plagues, he has these signs that he wants Moses and Aaron to show Pharaoh, to show God's power. One of the signs was uh, Moses would throw down his staff, and it turned into what? You remember? A snake, right? And so Pharaoh said, hey, okay, you want to do magic? You want to play that game? I've got some magicians, and uh, let's see what they can do. Hey guys, can you throw your stick down and make it into a snake, and the... The, the Bible says the Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate that feat. Now, how in the world did they throw a, a stick down and make it become a snake? The answer is demonic power. The only answer I can come up with. Demonic power. Because it doesn't say they were using illusion. Was, they were real snakes. So I'm reading that, and there's just this one little sentence that's thrown in there, and it says that Moses' snake ate the other snakes. Do you remember that? And I sat back for a minute and I said... Now, what's the significance of that? And I just began to sit back and think, why did Moses' snake eat the other snakes? And here's what I came up with: God's just showing His power over the demonic realm. That yeah, the 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 the, the magicians use their demonic black arts to 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 turn a stick into a snake. But guess what? God's more powerful than the, than the demonic realm. Uh, God's power is more powerful than the black arts. And, and it's just awesome. I just I got excited to think about Moses snaking all the other snakes. Isn't that cool? And so, and so that again, I just slowed down. Just, just kind of thought about that one little sentence. And then it got me thinking about greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world and God's ultimate victory over Satan in the demonic realm. And I just had a good old time. Because that one sentence in an exodus. See how that works? That's biblical meditation, okay? And so I, I encourage you to do that. Because the Bible is such an amazing gift, we should delight in it. We should meditate on it. I love how Spurgeon says this about meditation. Listen to this quote. He delights the, the man of God. He delights, moreover, to meditate in it, the Word of God, to read it by day, to think upon it by night. He takes a text and carries it with him all day long. And in the night watches, when sleep forsakes his eyelids, he museth upon the word of God. I love this. In the day of his prosperity, he sings psalms out of the word of God. And in the night of his affliction, he comforts himself with promises out of the same book. In other words, if you would internalize the word of God, it'll give you something to praise God for when things are good, and it'll give you some promises to hold on to when things are bad. But if you don't know your Bible you're not going to know what promises to hold on to, right? Meditate. Delight in the word of God. Very quickly, number three. Another characteristic of those who are in the congregation of the righteous. They're people that are strong and fruitful. Look in verse three. So we've made it through two verses so far. I told you there's a lot here, okay? But we're going to speed up. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. He's speaking here of someone who has their their spiritual roots in the Word of God and, and is drawing nourishment, strength, guidance, wisdom, wherewithal from the Word of God. So here's what we learn from that. Uh, when we draw from the resources God provides, we will have inner spiritual strength we we'll have a will be a tree that is strong, right not a tree that 's rotten or or hollow on the inside that blows over with every wind, but a tree that has deep roots that is strong. We will have inner spiritual strength, and also we will bear fruit for the glory of God. Look what it says there he 's planted by streams of water, it yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So if you will, if you will dig your, deep, your, your roots deep into the Word of God, you'll begin to bear fresh fruit in your life. And by fruit, it means anything done for the glory of God. All right? You'll begin to live by your words, your actions, for the glory of God. So people that are righteous in the congregation of the righteous are people that are strong and fruitful. Verse 3 means. And, and number 4... People in the congregation of the righteous are people with hope. People with hope. Look what it says in verse 4. The wicked are not so. So there's a contrast here between the blessed man, the righteous man, and the wicked man. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, here in this verse, the blessed person is contrasted with the wicked. And the wicked person is compared to chaff. Now, the, the, the word picture here that the psalmist is putting in our minds is that of a threshing floor at the time of the grain harvest. Uh, the threshing floors in this area uh, in ancient times were usually on hills. They were set on hills that would catch the breezes blowing through the hills. And what they would do is they would bring the grain in from the field. They would harvest the grain. They would crush the grain with animals or by threshing instruments. Uh, and then they would take the crushed grain and they would use a pitchfork or some similar inst- uh, instrument. They would throw it up into the air, and that wind would blow the chaff away, and the good stuff, the usable stuff, would fall back down onto the floor. And so the heavier grain would fall, fall on the floor and be collected. The chaff uh, would be scattered, or it would be burned. And that's what the psalmist says wicked people are like. They're like chaff. Their, their life is just just empty. It's just they're just blown away, and they're living a futile life. So the chaff pictures the empty, futile life of unbelievers. The chaff pictures the empty, futile life of unbelievers. Chaff was 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 not counted as worth holding on to. And listen to me, the life, the life that is far from God is an empty life. I don't care how good it looks on the outside. The, the, the person that is living far from God is living in futility. And they may not even know it. But also, this pictures the coming judgment. Chaff would be burned. Look what it says in the next verse. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Perish. He's speaking here of judgment. Just like chaff w- w- would be burned in this day and time burning is a symbol of judgment. And so here's what we learn from that. The wicked person, the person that is far from God, the person that has turned their back to the ways of God, the wicked person is headed for an eternity of destruction. But, here's where the hope comes in. The person that has been declared righteous by Jesus has a relationship with God that will last forever. The person that has been declared righteous by Jesus has a relationship with God that will last forever. Look what it says there in verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He's speaking of the personal relationship we have with God. It reminds me of Romans five one that says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Good verse, right? And so, people that are in the congregation of the righteous are people that have hope. Because we know that when it's all said and done, we will be with with the Lord forever and not experience destruction. And to close down, turn to Second Thessalonians, I want to show you a verse that really paints a picture of contrast between the end of the saved and the end of the unsaved. Look what it says over in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse five. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And so the believers in Thessalonica were going through some persecution, and God's saying, listen to me, I know you're going through a hard time, but you need to understand that at the end of all things, God's going to settle the score. God's, God's going to take care of everything. All right. Look what it says. "...and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us... ...when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels... ...in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance... ...watch this, on those who do not know God... ...and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus... They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was belief. So which group would you rather be in? The group that suffers eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord or the person that gets a relationship with God forever and ever and ever and ever in heaven? Would you rather choose hell, where you're separated from God forever, or heaven, where you're in relationship with God forever? The Bible teaches the reality of both places. There is a heaven, and there is a hell, and the Bible teaches that where a person spends eternity is based upon what they do with Jesus here in this life. And so, Psalm 1 is just a reminder of the hopelessness of living far from God, and the the, the hope that comes when you place your faith in Christ and you are in the congregation of the righteous. And so, Psalm 1 is a gateway to the rest of the Psalms. Just reminding us, hey, these are some worship songs. And If you're going to sing these songs and learn these songs and mean them, Psalm 1 says, here's what your life ought to look like. It's what the congregation of the righteous ought to look like.